Section 19 of The Letters of Mark Twain Complete. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. The Letters of Mark Twain Complete by Mark Twain. Volume 3, Chapter 18. Letters from Europe. 1878 to 79 tramping with twitchell writing a new travel book life in munich whether the unhappy occurrence at the whittier dinner had anything to do with mark twain's resolve to spend a year or two in europe cannot be known now there were other good reasons for going one in particular being a demand for another book of travel it was also true, as he explains in a letter to his mother, that his days were full of annoyances, making it difficult for him to work. He had a tendency to invest money in almost any glittering enterprise that came along, and at this time he was involved in the promotion of a variety of patent rights that brought him no return other than assessment and vexation. Clemens' mother was by this time living with her son Orion and his wife in Iowa. To Mrs. Jane Clemens in Keokuk, Iowa, Hartford, February 17, 1878. My dear mother, I suppose I am the worst correspondent in the whole world, and yet I grow worse and worse all the time. My conscience blisters me for not writing you, but it has ceased to abuse me for not writing other folks. Life has come to be a very serious matter with me. I have a badgered, harassed feeling, a good part of my time. It comes mainly of business responsibilities and annoyances, and the persecution of kindly letters from well-meaning strangers, to whom I must be rudely silent or else put in the biggest half of my time bothering over answers. There are other things also that help to consume my time and defeat my projects. Well, the consequence is, I cannot write a book at home. This cuts my income down. Therefore, I have about made up my mind to take my tribe and fly to some little corner of Europe and budge no more until I shall have completed one of the half-dozen books that lie begun upstairs. Please say nothing about this at present. We propose to sail the 11th of April. I shall go to Fredonia to meet you but it would not be well for Livy to make that trip, I am afraid. However, we shall see. I will hope she can go. Mr. Twitcher has just come in, so I must go to him. We are all well, and send love to you all. Affectionately, Sam. He was writing few letters at this time and doing but little work. There were always many social events during the winter, and what with his European plans and a diligent study of the German language which the entire family undertook, his days and evenings were full enough. Howells wrote protesting against the European travel and berating him for his silence. I never was in Berlin, and don't know any family hotel there. I should be glad I didn't, if it would keep you from going. You deserve to put up at the sign of the savage in Vienna, Really, it's a great blow to me to hear of that prospected sojourn. It's a shame. I must see you somehow before you go, 
I'm in dreadfully low spirits about it. I was afraid your silence meant something wicked. Clemens replied promptly, urging a visit to Hartford, adding a postscript for Mrs. Howells, characteristic enough to warrant preservation. P.S. To Mrs. Howells in Boston, February 78. Dear Mrs. Howells, Mrs. Clemens wrote you a letter and handed it to me half an hour ago while I was folding mine to Mr. Howells. I laid that letter on this table before me while I added the paragraph about R's application. Since then I have been hunting and swearing and swearing and hunting, but I can't find a sign of that letter. It is the most astonishing disappearance I ever heard of. Mrs. Clemens has gone off driving so I will have to try and give you an idea of her communication from memory. Mainly, it consisted of an urgent desire that you come to see us next week, if you can possibly manage it, for that will be a reposeful time, the turmoil of breaking up beginning the week after. She wants you to tell her about Italy, and advise her in that connection, if you will. Then she spoke of her plans, hers, mind you, for I never have anything quite so definite as a plan. She proposes to stop a fortnight and confound the place I've forgotten what it was. Then go and live in Dresden till some time in the summer, then retire to Switzerland for the hottest season, then stay a while in Venice and put in the winter in Munich. This program subject to modifications according to circumstances. She said something about some little by-trips here and there, but they didn't stick in my memory because the idea didn't charm me. They have just telephoned me from the current office that Bayard Taylor and family have taken rooms in our ship, the whole Satia, for the 11th April. Do come if you possibly can, and remember and don't forget to avoid letting Mrs. Clemens find out I lost her letter. Just answer her the same as if you had got it. Sincerely yours, S. L. Clemens. The Howellses came, as invited, for a final reunion before the breaking up. This was in the early half of March. The Clemenses were to sail on the 11th of the following month. Orion Clemens, meantime, had conceived a new literary idea and was piling in his manuscript as fast as possible to get his brother's judgment on it before the sailing date. It was not a very good time to send manuscript, but Mark Twain seems to have read it and given it some consideration. The Journey in Heaven, of his own, which he mentions, was the story published so many years later, under the title of Captain Stormfield's Visit to Heaven. He had began it in 1868, on his voyage to San Francisco, it having been suggested by conversations with Captain Ned Wakeman, of one of the Pacific steamers. Wakeman also appears in Roughing It, Chapter 50, as Captain Ned Blakely, and again in one of the rambling notes of an idle excursion, as Captain Hurricane Jones. To Orion Clemens in Keokuk, Hartford, March 23, 1878. My dear brother, every man must learn his trade, not pick it up. God requires that he learn it by slow and painful processes. The apprentice hand, 
in blacksmithing, in medicine, in literature, in everything, is a thing that can't be hidden. It always shows. But happily there is a market for apprentice work, else the innocents abroad would have had no sale. Happily, too, there is a wider market for some sorts of apprentice literature than there is for the very best of journey work. This work of yours is exceedingly crude, but I am free to say it is less crude than I expected it to be, and considerably better work than I believed you could do. It is too crude to offer to any prominent periodical, so I shall speak to the New York Weekly people. To publish it there will be to bury it. Why could not same good genius have sent me to the New York Weekly with my apprentice sketches? You should not publish it in book form at all, for this reason. It is only an imitation of Verne. It is not a burlesque. But I think it may be regarded as proof that Verne cannot be burlesqued. In accompanying notes I have suggested that you vastly modify the first visit to hell and leave out the second visit altogether. Nobody would or ought to print those things. You are not advanced enough in literature to venture upon a matter requiring so much practice. Let me show you what a man has got to go through. Nine years ago I mapped out my journey in heaven. I discussed it with literary friends whom I could trust to keep it to themselves. I gave it a deal of thought from time to time. After a year or more, I wrote it up. It was not a success. Five years ago, I wrote it again, altering the plan. That manuscript is at my elbow now. It was a considerable improvement on the first attempt, but still it wouldn't do. Last year, and the year before, I talked frequently with Howells about the subject, and he kept urging me to do it again. So I thought and thought, at odd moments, and at last I struck what I considered to be the right plan. Mind, I have never altered the ideas from the first. The plan was the difficulty. When Howells was here last, I laid before him the whole story without referring to my manuscript, and he said, You have got it sure this time, but drop the idea of making mere magazine stuff of it. Don't waste it. Print it by itself. Publish it first in England. Ask Dean Stanley to endorse it, which will draw some of the teeth of the religious press, and then reprint in America. I doubt my ability to get Dean Stanley to do anything of the sort, but I shall do the rest, and this is all a secret which you must not divulge. Now look here. I have tried all these years to think of some way of doing hell too, and have always had to give it up. Hell, in my book, will not occupy five pages of manuscript, I judge. It will be only covert hints, I suppose, and quickly dropped. I may end by not even referring to it. And mind you, in my opinion, you will find that you can't write up hell so it will stand printing. Neither Howells nor I believe in hell or the divinity of the Savior, but no matter, the Savior is nonetheless a sacred personage, and a man should have no desire or disposition to refer to him lightly, profanely, or otherwise than with the profoundest reverence. The only safe thing is not to introduce him, or refer to him at all, I suspect. 
I have entirely rewritten one book three, perhaps four times, changing the plan every time, twelve hundred pages of manuscript, wasted and burned, and shall tackle it again one of these years, and maybe succeed at last. Therefore, you need not expect to get your book right the first time. Go to work and revamp or rewrite it. God only exhibits his thunder and lightning at intervals, and so they always command attention. These are God's adjectives. You thunder and lightning too much. The reader ceases to get under the bed by and by. Mr. Perkins will send you and Ma your checks when we are gone. But don't write him ever, except a single line in case he forgets the checks, for the man is driven to death with work. I see you are half-promising yourself a monthly return for your book. In my experience, previously counted chickens never do hatch. How many of mine I have counted, and never one of them but failed. It is much better to hedge disappointment by not counting. Unexpected money is a delight. The same sum is a bitterness when you expected more. My time in America is growing mighty short. Perhaps we can manage in this way. I promise if the New York Weekly people know that you are my brother, they will turn that fact into an advertisement, a thing of value to them, but not to you and me. This must be prevented. I will write them a note to say you have a friend near Keokuk, Charles S. Miller, who has a manuscript for sale which you think is a pretty clever travesty on Verne, and if they want it, they might write to him in your care. Then, if any correspondence ensues between you and them, let Molly write for you and sign your name, your own handwriting representing Miller's. Keep yourself out of sight till you make a strike on your own merits. There is no other way to get a fair verdict upon your merits. Later, I've written the note to Smith, and with nothing in it which he can use as an advertisement. I'm called. Goodbye. Love to you both. We leave here next Wednesday for Elmira. We leave there April 9 or 10, and sail 11th. Your brother, Sam. In the letter that follows, the mention of Annie and Sam refers, of course, to the children of Mrs. Moffat, who had been Pamela Clemens. They were grown now, and Annie Moffat was married to Charles L. Webster, who later was to become Mark Twain's business partner. The Moffats and Websters were living in Fredonia at this time, and Clemens had been to pay them a good-bye visit. The Taylor dinner mentioned was a farewell banquet given to Bayard Taylor, who had been appointed minister to Germany, and was to sail on the ship with Mark Twain. Mark Twain's mother was visiting in Fredonia when this letter was written. To Mrs. Jane Clemens in Fredonia, April 7, 78. My dear mother, I have told Livy all about Annie's beautiful house, and about Sam and Charlie, and about Charlie's ingenious manufactures, and his strong manhood, and good promise, and how glad I am that he and Annie married. And I have told her about Annie's excellent housekeeping, also about the great bacon conflict. I told you it was a hundred to one that neither Livy nor the European powers had heard of that desolating struggle. 
and I have told her how beautiful you are in your age, and how bright your mind is with its old-time brightness, and how she and the children would enjoy you. And I have told her how singularly young Pamela is looking, and what a fine large fella Sam is, and how ill the lingering syllable my to his name fits his port and figure. Well, Pamela, after thinking it over for a day or so, I came near inquiring about a stateroom in our ship for Sam, to please you, but my wiser former resolution came back to me. It is not for his good that he have friends in the ship. His conduct in the bacon business shows that he will develop rapidly into a manly man as soon as he is cast loose from your apron strings. You don't teach him to push ahead and do and dare things for himself but you do just the reverse. You are assisted in your damaging work by the tyrannous ways of a village. Villagers watch each other and so make cowards of each other. After Sam shall have voyaged to Europe by himself and rubbed against the world and taken and returned its cuffs, do you think he will hesitate to escort a guest into any whiskey mill in Fredonia when he himself has no sinful business to transact there? No he will smile at the idea. If he avoids this courtesy now from principle, of course I find no fault with it at all, only, if he thinks it is principle, he may be mistaken. A close examination may show it is only a bowing to the tyranny of public opinion. I only say it may. I cannot venture to say it will. Hartford is not a large place but it is broader than to have ways of that sort. Three or four weeks ago, at a Moody and Sankey meeting, the preacher read a letter from somebody exposing the fact that a prominent clergyman had gone from one of those meetings, bought a bottle of lager beer, and drank it on the premises, a drug store. A tempest of indignation swept the town. Our clergyman and everybody else said the culprit had not only done an innocent thing, but had done it in an open, manly way, and it was nobody's right or business to find fault with it. Perhaps this dangerous latitude comes of the fact that we never have any temperance rot going on in Hartford. I find here a letter from Orion, submitting some new matter in his story for criticism. When you write him, please tell him to do the best he can, and bang away. I can do nothing further in this matter, for I have but three days left in which to settle a deal of important business and answer a bushel and a half of letters. I am very nearly tired to death. I was so jaded and worn at the Taylor dinner that I found I could not remember three sentences of the speech I had memorized, and therefore got up and said so and excused myself from speaking. I arrived here at three o'clock this morning. I think the next three days will finish me. The idea of sitting down to a job of literary criticism is simply ludicrous. A young lady passenger in our ship has been placed under Livy's charge. Livy couldn't easily get out of it, and did not want to, on her own account, but fully expected I would make trouble when I heard of it. But I didn't. A girl can't well travel alone, so I offered no objection. She leaves us at Hamburg. 
so i've got six people in my care now which is just six too many for a man of my unexecutive capacity i expect nothing else but to lose some of them overboard we send our loving goodbyes to all the household and hope to see you again after a spell affectionately yours sam there are no other american letters of this period the Clemens party, which included Miss Clara Spaulding of Elmira, sailed as planned on the Holsatia, April 11, 1878. As before stated, Bayard Taylor was on the ship. Also, Murat Halstead and family. On the eve of departure, Clemens sent to Howells this farewell word. And that reminds me, ungrateful dog that I am, that I owe as much to your training as the rude country job printer owes to the city boss who takes him in hand and teaches him the right way to handle his art. I was talking to Mrs. Clemens about this the other day, and grieving because I never mentioned it to you, thereby seeming to ignore it, or to be unaware of it. Nothing that has passed under your eye needs any revision before going into a volume, while all my other stuff does need so much. A characteristic tribute, and from the heart. The first European letter came from Frankfurt, a rest on their way to Heidelberg. To W. D. Howells in Boston. Frankfurt on the Mine, May 4, 1878. My dear Howells, I only propose to write a single line to say we are still around. Ah, I have such a deep, grateful, unutterable sense of being out of it all. I think I foretaste some of the advantages of being dead, some of the joy of it. I don't read any newspapers or care for them. When people tell me England has declared war, I drop the subject, feeling that it is none of my business. When they tell me Mrs. Tilton has confessed and Mr. B. denied, I say both of them have done that before. Therefore, let the worn stub of the Plymouth whitewash brush be brought out once more, and let the faithful spit on their hands and get to work again, regardless of me, for I am out of it all. We had two almost devilish weeks at sea, and I tell you Bayard Taylor is a really lovable man, which you already knew. Then we stayed a week in the beautiful, the very beautiful city of Hamburg, and since then we have been fooling along four hours per day by rail, with a courier, spending the other twenty in hotels whose enormous bedchambers and private parlors are an overpowering marvel to me. Day before yesterday, in Castle, we had a love of a bedroom, thirty-one feet long, and a parlor with two sofas, twelve chairs, a writing desk, and four tables scattered around here and there in it. Made of red silk, too, by George. The times and times I wish you were along. You could throw some fun into the journey, whereas I go on day by day in a smileless state of solemn admiration. What a paradise this is! What clean clothes! What good faces! What tranquil contentment! What prosperity, what genuine freedom, what superb government. And I am so happy, for I am responsible for none of it. I am only here to enjoy. How charmed I am when I overhear a German word which I understand. 
with love from us too to you too mark p s we are not taking six days to go from hamburg to heidelberg because we prefer it quite on the contrary mrs clemens picked up a dreadful cold and sore throat on board ship and still keeps them in stock so she could only travel four hours a day she wanted to dive straight through but i had different notions about the wisdom of it i found that four hours a day was the best she could do before i forget it our permanent address is care messieurs kester and company backers heidelberg we go there tomorrow poor susie from the day we reached german soil we have required rosa to speak german to the children which they hate with all their souls the other morning in hanover susie came to us from rosa in the nursery and said in halting syllables papa wie viel uhr ist es then turned with pathos in her big eyes and said mama i wish rosa was made in english unfinished frankfurt was a brief halting place their destination being heidelberg they were presently located there in the beautiful schloss hotel which overlooks the old castle with its forest setting the flowing necker and the distant valley of the rhine clemens who had discovered the location and loved it toward the end of may reported to howells his felicities fragment of a letter to w d howells in boston schloss hotel heidelberg sunday a m may twenty sixth eighteen seventy eight my dear howells divinely located from this airy porch among the shining groves we look down upon heidelberg castle and upon the swift necker and the town and out over the wide green level of the rhine valley a marvelous prospect we are in a cul-de-sac formed of hill ranges and river we are on the side of a steep mountain the river at our feet is walled on its other side yes on both sides by a steep and wooded mountain range which rises abruptly aloft from the water's edge portions of these mountains are densely wooded the plain of the rhine seen through the mouth of this pocket has many and peculiar charms for the eye our bedroom has two great glass bird cages enclosed balconies one looking toward the rhine valley and sunset the other looking up the necker cul-de-sac and naturally we spend nearly all our time in these when one is sunny the other is shady we have tables and chairs in them we do our reading writing studying smoking and supping in them the view from these bird cages is my despair the pictures change from one enchanting aspect to another in ceaseless procession never keeping one form half an hour and never taking on an unlovely one and then heidelberg on a dark night it is massed away down there almost right under us you know and stretches off toward the valley its curved and interlacing streets are cobweb beaded thick with lights a wonderful thing to see then the rows of lights on the arched bridges and their glinting reflections in the water and away at the far end the eisenbahnhof with its twenty solid acres of glittering gas jets a huge garden 
as one may say, whose every plant is a flame. These balconies are the darlingest things. I have spent all the morning in this north one. Counting big and little, it has 256 panes of glass in it. So one is in effect right out in the free sunshine, and yet sheltered from wind and rain, and likewise doored and curtained from whatever may be going on in the bedroom. It must have been a noble genius who devised this hotel. Lord, how blessed is the repose, the tranquillity of this place. Only two sounds, the happy clamor of the birds in the groves, and the muffled music of the necker tumbling over the opposing dikes. It is no hardship to lie awake a while nights, for this subdued roar has exactly the sound of a steady rain beating upon a roof. It is so healing to the spirit, and it bears up the thread of one's imaginings as the accompaniment bears up a song. While Livy and Miss Spaulding have been writing at this table, I have sat tilted back nearby with a pipe and the last Atlantic, and read Charlie Warner's article with prodigious enjoyment. I think it is exquisite. I think it must be the roundest and broadest and completest short essay he has ever written. It is clear and compact and charmingly done. The hotel grounds join and communicate with the castle grounds, so we and the children loaf in the winding paths of those leafy vastnesses a great deal, and drink beer, and listen to excellent music. When we first came to this hotel a couple of weeks ago, I pointed to a house across the river, and said I meant to rent the center room on the third floor for a workroom. Jokingly, we got to speaking of it as my office, and amused ourselves with watching my people daily in their small grounds and trying to make out what we could of their dress, etc., without a glass. Well, I loafed along there one day and found on that house the only sign of the kind on that side of the river. Moblerte, Vonung zu Vermethen. I went in and rented that very room which I had long ago selected. There was only one other room in the whole double house unrented. It occurs to me that I made a great mistake in not thinking to deliver a very bad German speech, every other sentence pieced out with English, at the Bayard Taylor banquet in New York. I think I could have made it one of the features of the occasion. He used this plan at a gathering of the American students in Heidelberg on July 4th with great effect, so his idea was not wasted. We left Hartford before the end of March, and I have been idle ever since. I have waited for a call to go to work. I knew it would come. Well, it began to come a week ago. My notebook comes out more and more frequently every day since. Three days ago I concluded to move my manuscript over to my den. Now the call is loud and decided at last. So tomorrow I shall begin regular steady work and stick to it till middle of July or 1st August when I look for Twitchell. We will then walk about Germany two or three weeks and then I'll go to work again, perhaps in Munich. We both send a power of love to the houses and we do wish you were here. Are you in the new house? Tell us about it. Yours ever, Mark. There has been no former mention in the letters of the coming of Twitchell, 
yet this had been a part of the European plan. Mark Twain had invited his walking companion to make a tramp with him through Europe as his guest. Material for the new book would grow faster with Twitchell as a companion, and these two, in spite of their widely opposed views concerning providence and the general scheme of creation, were wholly congenial comrades. Twitchell, in Hartford, expecting to receive the final summons to start, wrote, Oh my! Do you realize, Mark, what a symposium it is to be? I do. To begin with, I am thoroughly tired, and the rest will be worth everything. To walk with you and talk with you for weeks together, why, it's my dream of luxury. August 1st brought Twitchell and the friends set out without delay on a tramp through the black forest making short excursions at first but presently extending them in the direction of switzerland mrs clemens and the others remained in heidelberg to follow at their leisure to mrs clemens her husband sent frequent reports of their wanderings it will be seen that their tramp did not confine itself to pedestrianism though they did in fact walk a great deal and mark twain in a note to his mother declared I loathe all travel, except on foot. The reports to Mrs. Clemens follow. Letters to Mrs. Clemens in Heidelberg. Alla Heiligen, August 5, 1878.00 p.m. Livy, darling, we had a rattling good time today, but we came very near to being left at Baden-Baden for instead of waiting in the waiting-room we sat down on the platform to wait where the trains come in from the other direction we sat there a full ten minutes and then all of a sudden it occurred to me that that was not the right place on the train the principal of the big english school at nauheim of which mr shiding was a teacher introduced himself to me and then he mapped out our day for us for today and tomorrow and also drew a map and gave us directions how to proceed through Switzerland. He had his entire school with him, taking them on a prodigious trip through Switzerland, tickets for the round trip $10 apiece. He has done this annually for ten years. We took a post carriage from Aachen to Otterhofen for seven marks, stopped at the Flug to drink beer, and saw that pretty girl again at a distance. Her father, mother, and two brothers received me like an ancient customer, and sat down and talked as long as I had any German left. The big room was full of red-vested farmers, the Gemeindrath of the district, with the Burgermeister at the head, drinking beer and talking public business. They had held an election and chosen a new member, and had been drinking beer at his expense for several hours. It was intensely black forestry. There was an Australian there, a student from Stuttgart or somewhere, and Joe told him who I was, and he laid himself out to make our course plain for us, so I am certain we can't get lost between here and Heidelberg. We walked a carriage road till we came to that place where one sees the footpath on the other side of the ravine. Then we crossed over and took that. For a good while we were in a dense forest and judged we were lost, but met a native woman who said we were all right. We fooled along and got there at 6 p.m. 
ate supper, then followed down the ravine to the foot of the falls, then struck into a blind path to see where it would go, and just about dark we fetched up at the devil's pulpit on top of the hills, then home, and now to bed, pretty sleepy. Joe sends love, and I sent a thousand times as much, my darling. S.L.C. Hotel Ginnon Livy, darling, we had a lovely day, jogged right along with a good horse and sensible driver, the last two hours right behind an open carriage, filled with a pleasant German family, old gentlemen and three pretty daughters. At table de haute tonight, three dishes were enough for me, and then I bored along tediously through the bill of fare, with a backache, not daring to get up and bow to the German family and leave. I meant to sit it through and make them get up and do the bowing, but at last Joe took pity on me and said he would get up and drop them a curtsy and put me out of my misery. I was grateful. He got up and delivered a succession of frank and hearty bows, accompanying them with an atmosphere of good fellowship which would have made even an English family surrender. Of course the Germans responded. Then I got right up, and they had to respond to my salams, too. So that was done. We walked up a gorge and saw a tumbling waterfall which was nothing to Giesbach, but it made me resolve to drop you a line and urge you to go and see Giesbach illuminated. Don't fail, but take a long day's rest first. I love you, sweetheart. Samuel Over the Gimme Pass 4.30 p.m., Saturday, August 24, 1878. Livy, darling, Joe and I have had a most noble day. Started to climb, on foot, at 8.30 this morning among the grandest peaks. Every half hour carried us back a month in the season. We left them harvesting second crop of hay. At 9 we were in July and found ripe strawberries. At 9.30 we were in June and gathered flowers belonging to that month. At 10 we were in May and gathered a flower which appeared in Heidelberg the 17th of that month. Also forget-me-nots which disappeared from Heidelberg about mid-May. At 11.30 we were in April, by the flowers. At noon we had rain and hail mixed and wind and enveloping fogs and considered it March. At 12.30 we had snowbanks above us and snowbanks below us, and considered it February. Not good February, though, because in the midst of the wild desolation, the forget-me-not still bloomed, lovely as ever. What a flower garden the Gimme Pass is! After I had got my hands full, Joe made me a paper bag, which I pinned to my lapel, and filled with choice specimens. I gathered no flowers which I had ever gathered before, except four or five kinds. We took it leisurely, and I picked all I wanted to. I mailed my harvest to you a while ago. Don't send it to Mrs. Brooks until you have looked it over, flower by flower. It will pay. Among the clouds and everlasting snows, I found a brave and bright little forget-me-not growing in the very midst of a smashed and tumbled stone debris just as cheerful as if the barren and awful domes and ramparts that towered around were the blessed walls of heaven. 
I thought how Lily Warner would be touched by such a gracious surprise if she, instead of I, had seen it. So I plucked it, and have mailed it to her with a note. Our walk was seven hours, the last two down a path as steep as a ladder, almost, cut in the face of a mighty precipice. People are not allowed to ride down it. This part of the day's work taxed our knees, I tell you. We have been loafing about this village, Luca bad, for an hour now. We stay here over Sunday. Not tired at all. Joe's hat fell over the precipice, so he came here bareheaded. I love you, my darling, Samuel. St. Nicholas, August 26, 78. Livy, darling, we came through a whooping today. Six hours tramp up steep hills and down steep hills in mud and water shoe deep and in a steady pouring rain which never moderated a moment. I was as chipper and fresh as a lark all the way and arrived without the slightest sense of fatigue. But we were soaked and my shoes full of water. So we ate at once, stripped and went to bed for two and a half hours while our traps were thoroughly dried and our boots greased in addition. Then we put our clothes on hot and went to table de haute. Made some nice English friends and shall see them at Zermatt tomorrow. Gathered a small bouquet of new flowers, but they got spoiled. I sent you a safety match box full of flowers last night from Lucabad. I have just telegraphed you to wire the family news to me at Raphael tomorrow. I do hope you are all well and having as jolly a time as we are, for I love you, sweetheart, and also, in a measure, the bays. Little Susie's word for babies. Give my love to Clara Spaulding, and also to the cubs. Samuel This, as far as it goes, is a truer and better account of the excursion than Mark Twain gave in the book that he wrote later. A tramp abroad has a quality of burlesque in it, which did not belong to the journey at all, but was invented to satisfy the craving for what the public conceived to be Mark Twain's humor. The serious portions of the book are much more pleasing, more like himself. The entire journey, as will be seen, lasted one week more than a month. Twitchell also made his reports home, some of which give us interesting pictures of his walking partner. In one place he wrote, Mark is a queer fellow. There is nothing he so delights in as a swift, strong stream. You can hardly get him to leave one when once he is within the influence of its fascinations. Twitchell tells how at Kandersteg they were together one evening, where a brook comes plunging down from Gasternthal, and how he pushed in adrift to see it go racing along the current. When I got back to the path, Mark was running downstream after it as hard as he could go, throwing up his hands and shouting in the wildest ecstasy, and when a piece went over a fall and emerged to view in the foam below, he would jump up and down and yell. He said afterward that he had not been so excited in three months. In other places Twitchell refers to his companion's consideration for the feeling of others and for animals. When we are driving, his concern is all about the horse. He can't bear to see the whip used, or to see a horse pull hard. After the walk over Gimme Pass, he wrote, 
Mark today was immensely absorbed in flowers. He scrambled around and gathered a great variety and manifested the intensest pleasure in them. He crowded a pocket of his notebook with his specimens and wanted more room. Whereupon Twitchell got out his needle and thread and some stiff paper he had and contrived the little paper bag to hang to the front of his vest. The tramp really ended at Lucerne, where Clemens joined his party, but a short excursion to Chillon and Chamonix followed, the travellers finally separating at Geneva, Twitchell to set out for home by way of England, Clemens to remain and try to write the story of their travels. He hurried a good-bye letter after his comrade. To Reverend J. H. Twitchell No date Dear old Joe, it is actually all over. I was so low-spirited at the station yesterday and this morning. When I woke, I couldn't seem to accept the dismal truth that you were really gone, and the pleasant tramping and talking at an end. Ah, my boy, it has been such a rich holiday to me, and I feel under such deep and honest obligations to you for coming. I am putting out of my mind all memory of the times when I misbehaved towards you and hurt you. I am resolved to consider it forgiven, and to store up and remember only the charming hours of the journeys, and the times when I was not unworthy to be with you, and share a companionship which to me stands first after Livy's. It is justifiable to do this, for why should I let my small infirmities of disposition live and grovel among my mental pictures of the eternal sublimities of the Alps? Livy can't accept or endure the fact that you are gone but you are, and we cannot get around it. So take our love with you, and bear it also over the sea to harmony, and God bless you both. Mark. From Switzerland, the Clemens party worked down into Italy, sightseeing, a diversion in which Mark Twain found little enough of interest. He had seen most of the sights ten years before, when his mind was fresh. He unburdened himself to Twitchell and to Howells, after a period of suffering. To J. H. Twitchell, in Hartford, Rome, November 3, 78. Dear Joe, I have received your several letters, and we have prodigiously enjoyed them. How I do admire a man who can sit down and wail away with a pen just the same as if it was fishing, or something else as full of pleasure and as void of labor. I can't do it else in common decency i would when i write to you joe if i can make a book out of the matter gathered in your company over here the book is safe but i don't think i have gathered any matter before or since your visit worth writing up i do wish you were in rome to do my sightseeing for me rome interests me as much as east hartford could and no more that is the rome which the average tourist feels an interest in but there are other things here which stir me enough to make life worth living. Livy and Clara Spaulding are having a royal time worshipping the old masters, and I as good a time gritting my ineffectual teeth over them. A friend waits for me. A power of love to you all. Amen. Mark. In his letter to Howells, he said, I wish I could give those sharp satires on European life which you mention, 
but of course a man can't write successful satire except he be in a calm judicial good humor whereas i hate travel and i hate hotels and i hate the opera and i hate the old masters in truth i don't ever seem to be in a good enough humor with anything to satirize it no i want to stand up before it and curse it and foam at the mouth or take a club and pound it to rags and pulp i have got in two or three chapters about wagner's operas and managed to do it without showing temper but the strain of another such effort would burst me from italy the clemens party went to munich where they had arranged in advance for winter quarters clemens claims in his report of the matter to howells that he took the party through without the aid of a courier though thirty years later in some comment which he set down on being shown the letter he wrote concerning this paragraph probably a lie he wrote also that they acquired a great affection for fraulein dahlweiner acquired it at once and it outlasted the winter we spent in a house to w d howells in boston number one a karlstrasse two e stockholm care fraulein dahlweiner munich november seventeen eighteen seventy eight my dear mr howells we arrived here night before last pretty well fagged an eight-hour pull from rome to florence a rest there of a day and two nights then five and a half hours to bologna one night's rest then from noon to ten thirty p m carried us to trent in the austrian tyrol where the confounded hotel had not received our message and so at that miserable hour in that snowy region the tribe had to shiver together in fireless rooms while beds were prepared and warmed then up at six in the morning and a noble view of snow peaks glittering in the rich light of a full moon while the hotel devils lazily deranged a breakfast for us in the dreary gloom of blinking candles then a solid twelve hours pull through the loveliest snow ranges and snow-draped forest and at seven p m we hauled up in drizzle and fog at the domicile which had been engaged for us ten months before munich did seem the horriblest place the most desolate place the most unendurable place and the rooms were so small the conveniences so meagre and the porcelain stove so grim ghastly dismal intolerable so livy and clara spaulding sat down forlorn and cried and i retired to a private place to pray by and by we all retired to our narrow german beds and when livy and i finished talking across the room it was all decided that we would rest twenty-four hours then pay whatever damages were required and straightway fly to the south of france but you see that was simply fatigue next morning the tribe fell in love with the rooms with the weather with munich and head over heels in love with fraulein dahlweiner we got a larger parlor an ample one threw two communicating bedrooms into one for the children and now we are entirely comfortable the only apprehension at present is that the climate may not be just right for the children in which case we shall have to go to france but it will be with the sincerest regret now i brought the tribe through rome myself we never had so little trouble before 
the next time anybody has a courier to put out to nurse i shall not be in the market last night the forlornities had all disappeared so we gathered around the lamp after supper with our beer and my pipe and in a condition of grateful snugness tackled the new magazines i read your new story aloud amid thunders of applause and we all agreed that captain jennis and the old man with the accordion hat are lovely people and most skillfully drawn and that cabin boy too we like of course we are all glad the girl has gone to venice for there is no place like venice now i easily understand that the old man couldn't go because you have a purpose in sending liddy by herself but you could send the old man over in another ship and we particularly want him along suppose you don't need him there what of that can't you let him feed the doves can't you let him fall in the canal occasionally can't you let his good-natured purse be a daily prey to guides and beggar boys can't you let him find peace and rest and fellowship under pair jacopo's kindly wing however you are writing the book not i still i am one of the people you are writing it for you understand i only want to insist in a friendly way that the old man shall shed his sweet influence frequently upon the page that is all the first time we called at the convent pere jacopo was absent the next time he was there and gave us preserved rose leaves to eat and talked about you and mrs howells and winnie and brought out his photographs and showed us a picture of the library of your new house but not so it was the study in your cambridge house footnote just at this moment miss spaulding spoke up and said something about pere jacopo there is more in this acting of one mind upon another than people think End of footnote. he was very sweet and good he called on us next day the day after that we left venice after a pleasant sojourn of three or four weeks he expects to spend this winter in munich and will see us often he said pretty soon i am going to write something and when i finish it i shall know whether to put it to itself or in the contributors club that contributors club was a most happy idea by the way i think that the man who wrote the paragraph beginning at the bottom of page six forty three has said a mighty sound and sensible thing i wish his suggestion could be adopted it is lovely of you to keep that old pipe in such a place of honor while it occurs to me i must tell you susie's last she is sorely badgered with dreams and her stock dream is that she is being eaten up by bears she is a grave and thoughtful child as you will remember last night she had the usual dream this morning she stood apart after telling it for some time looking vacantly at the floor and absorbed in meditation at last she looked up and with the pathos of one who feels he has not been dealt by with even-handed fairness said but mamma the trouble is that i am never the bear but always the person it would not have occurred to me that there might be an advantage even in a dream in occasionally being the eater instead of always the party eaten but i easily perceived that her point was well taken i'm sending to heidelberg for your letter and winnie's and i do hope they haven't been lost 
my wife and I send love to you all. Yours, Mark. The Howells story, running at this time in the Atlantic, and so much enjoyed by the Clemens party, was The Lady of the Aristook. The suggestions made for enlarging the part of the old man are eminently characteristic. Mark Twain's 43rd birthday came in Munich, and in his letter conveying this fact to his mother, we get a brief added outline of the daily life in that old Bavarian city. Certainly, it would seem to have been a quieter and more profitable existence than he had known amid the confusion of things left behind in America. To Mrs. Jane Clemens and Mrs. Moffat in America. Number 1A, Karlstrasse. December 1, Munich. 1878. My dear mother and sister, I broke the back of life yesterday and started downhill toward old age. This fact has not produced any effect upon me that I can detect. I suppose we are located here for the winter. I have a pleasant workroom a mile from here where I do my writing. The walk to and from that place gives me what exercise I need and all I take. We stayed three weeks in Venice, a week in Florence, a fortnight in Rome, and arrived here a couple of weeks ago. Livy and Miss Spaulding are studying drawing in German, and the children have a German day governess. I cannot see but that the children speak German as well as they do English. Susie often translates Livy's orders to the servants. I cannot work and study German at the same time, so I have dropped the latter and do not even read the language, except in the morning paper to get the news. We have all pretty good health, latterly, and have seldom had to call the doctor. The children have been in the open air pretty constantly for months now. In Venice they were on the water in the gondola most of the time, and were great friends with our gondolier, and in Rome and Florence they had long daily tramps, for Rosa is a famous hand to smell out the sights of a strange place. Here they wander less extensively. The family all join in love to you all, and to Orion and Molly. Affectionately your son, Sam. End of section 19. Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista.